welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Today is a really cool day. Uh, We are continuing on in our series called Masterpiece, which is dealing with the intersection of art and faith. When you talk about any kind of intersection, whether it's a road or a highway, sometimes there's a divide there. And what we've generally seen, for those of you that have operated as a Christian or you're figuring out Christianity, your faith, you've understood that you're a Christian, but maybe you're in the arts and you're trying to figure out how to tell a good story in a way that's honoring to Christ. Maybe you're in theater, maybe you're a dancer, but you're trying to maintain your walk with God as sometimes you're just in a space where telling God's story in the midst of a secular space can be very difficult. And oftentimes, some of you came from churches where everything secular was taboo. And we believe that we are his workmanship, that word poema in the Greek. We are his masterpiece. God has created us in a way where not only would we reflect his beauty through art, but we are his art into the world. And God wants to put us on display. Well, as we figure out this divide, this divide between sacred and secular, uh, oftentimes we need heroes, people that can kind of step over that line. Sho Baraka is a artist. He is a poet. He is a great thinker. Uh, Sho, uh, years ago, was a part of a, uh, a group, Reach Records, and on that label, he was predominantly known as a Christian artist. But as the years went on, Show started to begin to trend in other areas where he began to say, man, I believe that God's story can be told in ways where it's not just for the Christian, but I believe all types of people should be hearing about marriage, about relationships, about love. In many ways, Show Baraka has been a trendsetter in crossing this line that's been taboo and really making room for people where they're saying, I'm not just a Christian artist, I'm a Christian that does art and trying to describe that in such a way where people would understand it. He's gonna come and speak before us today. Again, this is just one of the messages in a series of messages. We have two more messages in this series, so we pray that you come back and hear those as well. Uh, and Show Barack is actually Michelle Lewis, who is my friend, that uh, we used to be roommates back in the day before we weren't married, praise God, no stories, not gonna tell him, praise God. But if you wanna hear him, not take some money. Um, but. Um, but, uh, but more than anything I could tell you about his art, that he's on Humble Beast Records, that he was on Reach Records, that he has, um, he deals a lot in this area of, of art and culture. More than anything I could tell you about the organizations that he runs, he is a man of God. I remember being at his wedding where he, uh, him and, Pat- in fact, his wife Patrice and Natasha used to be roommates and we were roommates. And somehow we're still friends, praise God. So... <laughs> We were, that was the real intersection, just figuring out our friendship after that. So, um, yeah. So anyway, I, wanna, I want uh, Amisha to come on up here, now, and I wonder if you'd let me pray for you real quick. Come on up, show. Why don't you give a big Bridge Church welcome to Show Baraka? Mind if I pray for you? Father, in this room, there are people wrestling with how to communicate their love for you in places where people don't love you, God. Yeah, yeah. There are people in this room who are, have been told by the world to not use the J word, yeah. and yet Jesus is the very person that defines their life. Yeah. Yeah. And yet Jesus was invited to weddings because he, was, he always brought good news. Yeah. Yeah. God, could we be the type of people they want to invite to a wedding? Come on. Not because we're worried about what they're drinking, but we could turn water into wine, we could make the party better. Uh, Allow us to be the kind of people that when we come into a space, whether it's art or our lives, we carry that good news. Would you use your man of God to share that good news with us today? In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless it. Good evening. I was going to say good morning. What's up? Uh, If I ever have time, I need to tell you a story about how I almost got James to fight a bunch of cues who live next door to us. That's the greatest story ever. Um, so I, I guess because he prayed for me, I don't, I don't need to pray again. So I'll just go into this thing. Um, uh, it's always good to be in New York. I, uh, I love New York. And then when I get off the plane, I immediately gr- regret my decision because I get overwhelmed. 
but I currently live in Atlanta right now. Um, you guys know Atlanta is the city New York used to be. You know, culture shaping, leader and, but growing up, shot, that was a shot. Um, but no, growing up, I, I really loved New York. It, it was even so bad that a long time ago, history lesson, a long time ago in the 1990s, for some of you millennials, there was this event called East Coast and West Coast Beef. And, and so for me, as someone who loved East Coast hip hop, I used to have to act like I was siding with West Coast artists. And, and it, was even, it even got crazy when like Tupac died because I had to actually act sad. Like, oh man, that's... I mean, as a human being, I cared for him. But, <laughs> but when Biggie died, that was like, I was done. I was done. Uh, I actually, like when we think of like the most traumatizing things that's ever happened to me, or I, I, I read about, I mean, the cross, the crucifixion, you know, slave trade, Magic Johnson catching AIDS, and then like Biggie dying was like, and I'm not saying it's in that order. I'm just saying like that's the, that's the things that, but music, I'm serious. I just, you know, I just want to be real. I'm at church. So music has shaped me. Music has helped formulate who I am. Art, I've always wanted to be an artist. I grew up in a house where my parents pushed me towards expressing myself. And um, I loved art from film. Film was one of the things that pushed me to be, uh, uh, go to an HBCU college, watching school days and a and, uh, different world. Um, Boys in the Hood taught me that if I'm running down an alley and someone's trying to shoot at you, you got to zigzag. You can't run a straight line. Straight line. But if, we, if we're real, we realize, that, we realize that art does a lot of shaping and it shapes our identity. And just recently there was a film that was quite epic, especially for people of color, uh, called Black Panther. And, and, I, and I can see how the subtle nuances of that film not only impacts me as a grown man, but I have a 13-year-old daughter who is extremely dark-skinned and has locks. And for her to see these images of strong black women and powerful women, like even the way, I remember one day she came up to me, she was like, see, I love Black Panther because like they weren't just damsels, these were strong black women who had agency and, uh, and I'm sitting there just like, yeah, word, word, word. That's exactly what I would say. And so as I grew up, you know, film not only had a, a very, a, a strong, indelible impact on me, but I grew up in a household where my mom was like a Black Panther, and uh, eventually she married Nation of Islam Muslim. So I was reading Hannibal, I was reading the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, I remember going to school in the seventh grade, giving this research paper on how white people evolved from the mountains of Caucasus, from uh, the, the, the uh, Yaqub's theory. I mean, it was crazy stuff. And these are real philosophies and ideologies. And this is, this is what shaped me. And so as I grew older, one of the things I realized is that art oftentimes shapes identity. The stories that are transmitted through not only our family, not only through academia, but through television and through music, it shapes our identity. It is identity formation. And a lot of stuff that I called so-called secular helped to shape me. Dare I say that God used some of those things to make me the man that I am for his glory. I went to college, and this is where things began to kind of create a clash. I went to college knowing that I wanted to work in entertainment, not quite sure exactly what. Um, my father played professional football. I have an older brother who played high-level college football, and I didn't quite get their size. And so I just kind of, like most Christians, was like, yeah, you know, the God, Lord called me to do other things. You know what I'm saying? He called me to... And so uh, I was like, you know what? I want to be a sports agent first. And I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. I want to... I want to figure out how can I be used and uh, uh, use my talents in the entertainment world. And I became a Christian. And this is when it became extremely confusing for me. Because um, as James said, uh, he was my roommate. And uh, we're not the same age, though. So let's get that clear. <laughs> but <laughs> let's get that clear. So, but... Great men like James were, were, were uh, encircled around me. All the great men I knew were working in college ministry. And for me, that did something to me because my thought was, in order to be a man of God, in order to excel in the Christian faith, I need to work in vocational ministry. And if you understand, like, 
Formation is not always just what's communicated. It's what's lived out in front of you sometimes. And if someone doesn't affirm your path and say, look, this is, a, this is what God has chosen you to do, sometimes what you'll start to believe is like God has called you to live somebody else's life. And so for a while there, I gave up my dreams of trying to be an artist and a cultural influencer through entertainment. And I was like, well, let me do this college ministry thing. I'm going to go in. I mean, somebody's going to pay me to like talk to people about Jesus. Let's do it. And then I realized they weren't going to pay me. I had to raise support. And I was like, nah, you telling me that I got to go ask my parents who sent me to college so that I can give them money. I got to ask them for money now. That wasn't happening in my household. And so I realized that if we, all we do is if all we do is extol pastors and preachers, then all we will produce our church are, is a church of insecure saints who are not sure how they will be used to equip the world or engage the world. I sooner, uh, sooner after that, I, I realized, you know what? I can use my talents at least for, not, probably not vocationally, but I'll rap for Jesus, which was somewhat absurd back then because it wasn't a whole lot of good Christian hip-hop. But then I discovered this group called The Cross Movement, and they had a great impact. And for you guys who don't know The Cross Movement, just imagine like the ASAP crew or like the Wu-Tang Clan, but a bunch of Christians, right? And for the first time, I felt like we have a representation of brothers who aren't corny, who know the lingo, and, and they're quite like, they're not only authentically Christian, they love the Lord, and they know the apologetic, and they know how to argue with the best of them, but they're culturally authentic. They know how to exist within the culture while still keeping their Christian distinctiveness. And for me, that was something that helped propel me to want to do the same. And then, as James communicated, I partnered with some brothers at University of North Texas. I had moved to Texas by this time. Um, and... Uh, we started a group called 116. It was just a bunch of rowdy dudes who was running around with, back then it was like the tall t-shirts, airbrush, making a fool of ourselves. And so, and, and we proclaimed the glory of Jesus in the ways in which we knew. But I started to grow frustrated because I saw that I was having minimal impact in places in which I felt like, I remember going back home and hanging around my friends and they were like, yeah, yeah, I heard you doing that Christian thing. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's cool. Like, I don't really listen to your music. I, what was the disconnect that these men who I grew up with, these women that I grew up with, who were the same age as me, looked like me, and when I would look out in the crowd, I would hope they would be the ones who would frequent my, my, my concerts, but I wasn't reaching them is because for some reason I was taught that there was distinctions that were to be made in the kind of content that I was making. I was around 30 years old still making music for youth groups. And at some point, I'm like, why am I not making music that reflects my particular time or the age group in which I exist? And so a couple things happened. One, I came to New York and I had this amazing experience. I went to a play off Broadway and I got to see Screw Tape Letters. And uh, I'm sitting there and I'm watching this play and uh, it's about 200 people in this auditorium. And afterwards, the individual who's the actor steps out and he does a Q&A with the audience. And he asks, he says, how many people in here believe in a God? And I would say like 40%, I mean, y'all know New York, it's probably less than 40, it was probably like 20% of the crowd was like. And then he asked, how many people actually believe in the Christian God that C.S. Lewis is writing about, and even less, rose their hand. And then he begins to have this dialogue and exchange with the audience. He's not proselytizing them, but what he's doing is he's creating, uh, he's disarming them of their religious aversion to get them to, to subtly understand, like one, they're there enjoying Christian art. A Christian art that is, has no uh, though it's created in a secular, I mean, in, this for, uh, in a secular, a sacred context, it's performed in one of the most secular spaces in this world. So that in itself can tell you what C.S. Lewis's greatness does, right? His art is used to infiltrate not just the sacred but the secular space. And so once I saw this, I said, why can't we as Christian artists make music that is not only appealing to the Lord, that makes much about the Lord, but also can be enjoyed in spaces where only 20% of the people believe in a God. And so then I, I, I said, you know what, I have, to, I have to begin to start changing 
the content of my music, but with that comes consequences, right? And so I started writing more songs about marriage. I wrote an album. I had an album called The Talented Tenth. And I, and I say all this to say that um, I began to overcome the obstacle of being afraid to make music that I felt was only for the, sac- the, the sacred. Because I believe in these next two texts. Psalms 24, 1 says, The earth and everything on it, including its people, belong to the Lord. The world and its people belonging to him, the Lord placed all on the oceans and the rivers. Colossians 1.16, it says, everything was created by him, everything in heaven and on earth, everything seen and unseen, including all the forces and powers, all the rulers of authorities, all things were created by God's son and everything was made for him. See, I was the kind of Christian beforehand who thought like your favorite artist, if I can have or, or, or growing up, better yet, not once I actually became a Christian, but growing up, I thought Christianity was, was basically like my favorite artist who made 12 songs of ratchetness, and as long as he threw that one gospel song at the end, that covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> like, this is how a lot of us think. We think like, hey, I mean, if I give God a piece of, if I offered a piece of sacredness to him, like, it's cool for me to be secular for the rest of my week. A lot of us walk around, and I think this is a very dangerous kind of like language, but we talk about how we place God first in our life, and then we put family second and work third. And it sounds all good, but I think this is dangerous language because God is not just first in your family. Uh, I mean, not first. He wants to be first in your family. He wants to be first in your work. He wants to be first in your relationships. He wants to be preeminent in all things. He wants to own all things. When you make decisions about what you do for a living, he wants to be included in that decision process. And so how are we putting God, not just first in who we marry, or not first in our life, but first in who we marry and first in the decisions that we make. But part of the process is that we have an inverted view of how our theology is created. Oftentimes we start with our sociology and move towards theology. But a bad theology creates a bad anthropology and sociology, and we have to start with good theology. Part of the problem is, is that we have a faith that is built on sin. Everything is built on the the, the aversion or the avoiding of sin. God is, our relationships with the Lord is not built on how well we avoid sin. It's how we pursue him in love. I think about my marriage relationship. If my wife is like, babe, do you love me? If I'm like, yeah, I'm not smashing a bunch of chicks. I mean, I'm not, I'm a I am avoiding sin. I mean, I only watch porn once this week. What? Okay, anyway. Um, she's going to be like, well, that's not, like, that's not pursuing me. That's not building. You're just not doing wrong stuff, but are you pursuing me? And, and I think part of our, 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 our faith is predicated on how well we preach sin. Even our evangelism, when we talk about sharing our faith, some of the, some of the evangelism tools, if if, if y'all don't know evangelism, how we share, how you talk about Jesus to people who don't know, uh, uh, how you talk about, talk to non-believers who don't know Jesus, oftentimes what we do is we say, have you sinned? Have you uh, stolen this week? We're all sinners. You know you're going to hell, right? So you need Jesus. Well, part of, the, the part of that that's incomplete is, is that's not where the gospel starts. The gospel doesn't start with sin. It starts with purpose in the Garden of Eden. And so if our theology doesn't start with purpose, an image bearing, then what's going to happen is we're going to build a theology that's based on sin and avoidance of sin. And so how do we begin to build a gospel that is not solely about secular and sacred and doesn't compartmentalize our activity? Because when you compartmentalize this idea of sacred and secular, then all you have, basically you have a faith that is only concerned with your personal piety. It means I can do whatever I want in some degree, right? But he's not, he doesn't really care about the work, like the actual activities of my life. Um, it creates many conflicts when we begin to create a secular and sacred divide. One is that it damages the way we think about art and work. Many of us think that pastors and missionaries are the only ones that are called to their vocation. Very few of, very, very few of us in here will think that the Lord has called you to the marketplace. 
Has he not set you apart and called you to be a graphic designer? Has he not called you to be an actor? Has he not called you to be an artist? Pastors and preachers and missionaries are not the only people that God calls. God sets us apart to be engagers in community, to be engagers in culture. And if all we do is extol shepherds and preachers, we'll have an anemic view of the gospel. And if we don't change that, it will continue to create a hierarchy of importance, right? And we have to begin to deconstruct that and reconstruct that all people are important, that, that your work doesn't have to be known or attached to some great social good to be important. The beauty of work or activity or art or creating is that it was a command or a mandate before there was ever sin. So if that means if before sin, before sin ever into the picture, God called us to be active, to create, and to, to, to be cultivators. And so therefore, your work, get this, is worship. What you do is worship unto the Lord. It's not just something you do to pass time. Tomorrow, some of us are going to be, so tomorrow we're going to walk into work, and you're going to be like, I don't want to be here. I am so frustrated. Just wait for somebody to say something. I'm going to tell them off. You're going to snap. But what if we walk into our work tomorrow thinking, like, I have the opportunity to shape culture to change the paradigm of how housing or to shape the paradigm of, of, of business management. I can't think of anything else right now, but you know what I'm saying. Like, whatever you do, God has placed you there to be a conduit of change. Eric Liddell, track star and missionary from Scotland, has one of my favorite quotes. He says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. What do you do in this room today that when you do it, you feel God's pleasure? Has God shaped you to do something that when you do it, you feel the presence of God on you? It doesn't have to be tied to church life. It doesn't have to be tied to something distinctively Christian. What do you do? This man ran. And that running, as we'll get to later, he did an excellence, and though therefore it gave him a platform, but he didn't do it just for, he did it because he believed it was worship. When I run, I am worshiping God because I am using the, the, the faculties of my body to bring glory to God. The other conflict, other than it creates bad theology of art and work, is that when we create this bifurcation of secular sacred, it creates a conflict or it limits the artist. It limits us. Another quote that I love is from a gentleman, T. Boone Burnett. He says, as an artist, as a songwriter, I can either write songs about the sun or I can write songs about what the sun helps me see. So as an individual who are creative thinkers, creative writers, creative individuals, when you, when you think about the freedom, the liberation that Jesus gives us as creators and cultivators, you can write a song about Jesus you can create art about Jesus. You can be Rembrandt and you can create realism that depicts uh, uh, the prodigal son. Or what you can do is just paint a picture of a barn. Or you can write a song about love. Because hopefully, not only when you write up songs about Jesus, is Jesus informing that, but when you write songs about what Jesus helps you see, he's informing that. So he's shaping your worldview. When I write about marriage, guess what? I'm writing about marriage from a paradigm of what the Bible speaks. And so, therefore, I'm not offending the gospel in any way, shape, or form. But part of the problem is Christian music in itself is the only genre. And this is, this is part of the Christian music is probably one of the only genres that is labeled because of its content and not its form. And so I feel like part of the problem is when Christian artists enter into, uh, you know, uh, I guess you could say a Christian artistic space, because of that label, they feel obligated to have to do things that, I guess, fulfill the adjective of Christian. Because this, this label is, and I hate to say it like this, it's, it's, an, it's a weight on me. But I was going to go on a, part of the problem is a lot of that content is a lot of the, the, the weight is not biblical weight, it's cultural weight. When we look, when we look at our CCMs and our, our, our record labels, a lot of that stuff is not biblical stuff. It's just cultural stuff. It's like, this is what you must do 
as a Christian artist. But how do we begin to say, you know what, I want to honor God in my content, but once again, I'm going to write from what he helps me see. One individual that I love and honor, um, who I recognize that wasn't limited in how he allowed the Lord to use him, is George Washington Carver, um, a professor for a long time over the agriculture department at the Tuskegee University, um, the greatest institution ever. Is this, there's a TU? Okay, all right. <laughs> all the way in New York, I got me one. Um, well, George Washington Carver, obviously, for some of you guys, he didn't actually invent peanut butter, but he did create 300 different uses from the lagoon plant, over 118 uses from the, uh, from the sweet potato and soy and, uh, and, other, and other. But the wonderful thing about George Washington Carver that I love is that he knew that the Lord gave him an ability to, to, to interact with secular spaces, plants, things that weren't necessarily sacred, to use those things for the glory of God. Because of his work, right, he changed the southern economy. He changed people's diets. He was uh, oftentimes con a consultant for Henry Ford and uh, Thomas Edison. Gandhi would reach out to him for insight on diet during his hunger strikes. This man was amazing to sit there and say, I don't believe that George Washington Carver was called to be a botanist to me would be an egregious claim against the Lord's providence. He was specifically chosen. The things that happened in his life from being abducted as a child to being sick, which made him uh, 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 active in, in wildlife, rather working uh, tirelessly in the field, gave him a, a, a particular uh, affinity for God's nature. The Lord orchestrated his, his path so that he could be used to change this world. He was called and used to be a botanist. The third thing, uh, the third conflict is that it, it limits Jesus's redemption or the things that Jesus can redeem. If we think about Jesus's only uh, Lord over the secular or the kingdom of God, then that says that the cross is small and irrelevant. Flannery O'Connor, a uh, wonderful artist that has some very, very interesting writing. She talks, she writes a lot about the South, of the white South, uh, as a white woman. She was a Catholic. She talked about, people would ask her, why is her artwork and why is her literature so gruesome and real and authentic? She was like, because sin is real, and when you make sin cheap, you make grace cheap. In our art, in our creating, most times what the Christian part compartmentalization does is it makes sin real cheap. I'm sure you say, look, I've been in a couple of terrible Christian movies. I'm not going to name them. Don't Google them. But when you look at the conflict in them, you're like, okay, that seems like an authentic conflict. I mean, those gangsters, nah, because you need more people. I don't believe you. And so, but I'm like, when you look at the conflict and how the conflict is resolved, you're like, word, that's all it takes to cure a city of racism? <laughs> We've been doing it wrong all this time, I guess. We've just been, okay. Because we don't know how to communicate the darkness of the world. Well, we're afraid to communicate the darkness. We know what dark, we know, we experience it in our, in our household. We experience it in our lives, but we're afraid to, oftentimes our Christian circles are afraid to communicate the deep darkness of sin because it, it ostracizes. And when you do, you won't be marketable to certain groups of people. And so therefore we live continuously in this idea of sacred and secular. What God has for his church is here, and what he doesn't is there. I, when I was in college, I'll never forget, I was hanging with a, with a buddy of mine. This is before I was a Christian, and, uh, and we were sitting in the car, and he was like, yo, man, I want you to listen to this song. And he plays this song, and the song is about abortion, right? And it's about how this rapper was sad and broken that he forced his girl to get an abortion. And so through the song, he's repenting. And then later, he's like, you know what? 
if let's try again because I, I was wrong to play God, right? Um, that artist is common. And on that song was Lauryn Hill. It's, the song was Never Dreamed You Leaving Summer. And I remember at the end of the song, I'm like, yo, this song is hot. And I look to my boy on the right and he's just bawling. And I'm like, bro, you need to get it together. Like, I don't know. I mean, it was a dope song, but it was, I mean, I'm not crying. Well, come to find out, he was like, yo, man, like, I just forced my girlfriend to get an abortion and I'm regretting it. And this song has convicted me. I'm sure he didn't say convicted. We would probably like say some other, this mo, you know, I don't know. But, <laughs> but he was, he was broken by this secular song that made him regret the decisions he made in his flesh. Now, if you're going to sit here and tell me that that song was not a song that was honoring the Lord at that moment, then I don't know what to tell you. Like, did the Lord not use that song to shape and draw this man to a point of conviction to repentance? The Lord is not short of ways and tools in which he can create redemption. So if the earth is the Lord and no place is off limits for his missionaries who are called to redeem all things back to its creator, we see Joseph who serves alongside the CEO of Egypt. You also can use your position to turn the heart of wicked leaders as a means to bless those who are on the margins. As we see Esther, she knew that her platform just wasn't for her own benefit, but her platform was you so that she can bless others? Are you leveraging your relationships? Are you leveraging your art and your work for the benefit of others? You may be like Rahab, though. You may be in the midst of work that you know you shouldn't be participating in. It's never too late for the Lord to use you in the midst of your sinful work to bless those who are on God's team. Amen? The earth is the Lord and all that's in it. So, this is the part where I actually get into the scriptures. I know I'm not a pastor. I am a speaker. I'm an artist. So I'm a little unorthodox. So we're going to go through Daniel. But, and the reason why we're going through Daniel is because I think that there is some, some content that we can use and be blessed by, by seeing the predicament which Daniel is in, right? And, and if you want a greater context of Daniel, you can go to Jeremiah like 27 through 29. And in this context, what God has done is God has said, I have placed my people in Babylon. So he has sent his people to exile. But he says something that's really interesting. He says, yes, I, I did it. I sent y'all there. But guess what? Ain't, I don't want no pity parties. He says, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. He says to all the captives, he says, build homes, plan to stay, plant gardens, eat the food they produce. In six, he says, marry and have children. In seven, he says, and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Like, pray for the city. And for its welfare will determine your welfare. So the, the amount that you pray for your government, for your city, will determine your blessing as well. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. Like, it's not going to just be four years. It may be 70 years. Amen? But he says, guess what? I have, I have promises. And this is the, the, the scripture that we all quote oftentimes out of context. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. These are plans of good not to harm you, but to give you future and a hope. This is, this is a promise in the midst of a wicked administration. This is why Christians have, we don't have the luxury to lose hope. No matter who is in office, we are always to remain hopeful because we have a God who is going to maintain his faithfulness. Amen? And so what we have is Daniel living in this tension, right? In the first part of Daniel, it says that uh, the rulers said, select only the strong and the healthy, the good-looking young man. So that would have been me. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning. Make sure these jokers understand our culture, understand who we are and how we operate. Um, uh, make sure they're gifted in knowledge and good judgment, and they are suited to serve in the royal palace. To train these young men in our language and literature. Um, and so what we see is Daniel and, and, and some of the other 
selected Hebrew men placed in this predicament. And in verse 1-8, it says, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. The first thing we see that Daniel does is he sanctifies himself in culture. It's not about creating a dichotomy of secular, sacred or secular. It's about how do I sanctify myself within the culture, right? Many artists and creatives, maybe in this room, but definitely in the Christian context, we want to create change, right? But part of the problem is sometimes we're doing more compromising than we are change. Daniel wasn't content with just being in the room. Don't be just content with just being invited in the room. How do you become a conduit of change and create boundaries? Don't eat the king's meat. I don't know what the king's meat is for you, but determine what that is. Set that boundary before it's even offered so you're not even stumbling over the decision. Next we see in uh, 17, chapter 1, 17 to 20, it says, God gave these young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions. I'm going to skip down because Daniel is dope and his boys is dope. Basically, what we see here is that the next thing we see is that he excelled in culture. Not only did he set himself apart, he says, whatever you place before me, I am going to excel because I serve an excellent God. Be excellent at what you do, amen? Excellence, as they say, is a great evangelism. Many artists move into Christian spaces because they know it's easier for success. Once again, I know you guys are young, but in Harlem, there was this thing um, back in the day called Apollo Theater. I know it's been gentrified. I don't know if they still have it. I'm going to tell you about the Apollo Theater. What would happen is that you would have these individuals who would get up, and it was a contest. Folks would get up and they would sing, and you would have an individual get up there and they would sing old school songs, like, you know, not original stuff, mostly songs on the radio, like, I get so weak in the knees, I can hardly, don't try to act like you don't know the song, I lose all control. But if they were off key like me, what would happen? They would get booed. And then Sandman would come out. But there was something very interesting about the folks, some folks who would participate in Apollo. They would be singing, I get so, and then they get booed, and they switch it up to like a gospel song real quick on you. Because they know the people will stop booing. Like they can't, they can't boo Jesus. And it would work. It would literally work. Folks would stop booing, and they'd get to clapping like, I can't believe they did that. Did he put the switch up on us? So, you know. I feel like a lot of our Christian art is like that. We just use Jesus as a stopgap to, like I've been in many a concerts where it's been dead and his folks was like, yo, make some noise for Jesus. <laughs> like, no, cuz, get off the stage, you're terrible. <laughs> Be excellent at what you do. Chapter two, <laughs> chapter two, verse 12 through 16, we see the king was furious when he heard these things. Uh, he had dreams and he wanted them to be interpreted. And in ordered, he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed because no one can uh, um, interpret their dreams. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. When uh, Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. He asked Arioch, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? And Arioch told him, all that had happened. And Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king his dream. Daniel realized that his gift was not only for his own benefit, but for the benefit of other people. Recognize that your gift is not just for you, it is for other people. He served for the benefit of others. Uh, next, we see that Daniel communes with God and others. In verse 17, he says that Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, uh, I think I got that right, what had happened, he urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy and tell them the secret so that they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. Um, we must be in community. Recognize that another thing we learn from Daniel is that community, community is important. The Bible doesn't give us the luxury of operating outside the context of community. Everything God does 
and every commandment throughout the scriptures is done in community. From his creation to his restoration is community. You are operating in the context of other people. So Romans 12 talks about how do we use our gifts for one another, right? So recognize you are using and have people around you that will love you and not just lie to you. Don't have a bunch of yes people around you. Um, the church is a, a body of people who are coming together for edification of one another. I remember uh, it, it was probably like after my, my second album, and I was feeling myself a little bit, just a little bit. I mean, I made some hot music. And the Robersons, the Robersons, no, <laughs> I'm not going to, it's not what you think I'm probably going to tell. The Robersons asked me to come. This was when they were in Raleigh. They asked me to come and do a concert in Raleigh. And... You know, I haven't seen them in some years, and I'm just like, hey, what's up? And it was a concert outside, and so it was like a back-to-school event, and so it was, I mean, a whole lot needed to be organized. And I'm out there, and I'm like, yeah, 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 love, love, love. And Natasha's like, show, nice to see you. All right, show, can you pick up these chairs and stack them over there and put those that we need over there? Um, you need him to do backpacks? Show, when you're done with that, go, go fill up some backpacks. And I'm like, wait, hold up. You brought me to perform. I'm no, my face is on a flyer, because I'm not like, I didn't come here to... I didn't come here to serve. I mean, not in that kind of serve. I came here to serve, but not that serve. It made me realize that when you have people around who know you, they don't care. Like, you're never too good to serve and to be told you need to pick up some chairs. So, <laughs> have some Natasha's around you is what I'm saying. Uh, the next thing we learn from Daniel is in 27, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 27 says that there are wise men, enchanters, magicians, and uh, magicians and fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret, but there is a God in heaven. This is Daniel talking. He said, look, you have all these people around you, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secret, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now, I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. Even though Daniel is giving all this praise and accolade, he, he says, look, look, I just want you to know I can do this, but this is not by my power and my might. He, re he redirects it back to God. He says that God is the one who does this. Um, he, he had an understanding of what biblical success looks like. Um, <clears throat> what's worse than worldly failure, right, I believe, is celebrating and having great achievements in a boardroom where God is not invited. What good is, so, so oftentimes when we think about, um, yeah, I'm so skip that because of time. Uh, the one thing, as I talked about George Washington Carver, the one thing I love about George Washington Carver is uh, not only was he a man of great wisdom and great insight, he was a very humble an unassuming individual. And on his gravestone, it says this, on his tombstone, it says this. He could, have had it, he could have added fortune to fame, but caring for neither, he found happiness and honor in being helpful to the world. Amen. The other thing we see is that we tell the truth. Daniel tells the truth. No matter the circumstances, he tells the truth. He recognizes that telling the truth could probably bring offense, could probably have him lose his position, but he doesn't care. He's like, I recognize that I have more allegiance to the truth of God than to the, purple, the people I work for or the people I make art for. Yeah. And so this is how we operate within spaces that are, uh, uh, I guess you can say secular, is tell the truth no matter what the condition. Um, Christians have the liberty of creating. I love this quote from Tim Keller. He talks about how we have this liberty to create as long as we keep sin the problem and we keep Jesus the solution. There's all kind of liberty, liberty and, and, and wiggle room in between, but once you start to change what the problem is and once you begin to change the solution, that's when we create an offense to God. Does your work tell the story of redemption? But the other thing is that we see that Daniel supports and promotes others. It's not just about his own success. He goes to the king Oh, the king appointed Daniel in verse 48 and 49 of chapter 2 to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler of the whole province of Babylon as well as chief over the wise men. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
to be in charge of all affairs of the providence of Babylon while Daniel remained in the king's court. So Daniel was like, I'm bringing my boys with me. Are we supporting and celebrating others while we're creating and cultivating? Oftentimes in artists' circles, it's easy to support successful people or to support people uh, that helps our personal career. But are you supporting those beneath you or on the side of you, right? Don't forget, like Mark 9 is an amazing chapter of what it means to, to lack support of people who are on your team. What you have are the disciples going out doing the work of the Lord, and they see these group of people who, who, who didn't, like, they weren't in the gym shooting with us, but they casting out demons and stuff. So they go back to Jesus and like, Jesus, who are these jokers that are out here casting out demons in your name? And Jesus says, look, if they're not against us, they're for us. Why do you have a problem with people's success and doing things for the glory of God in the kingdom? It's because they, didn't, they weren't with us, and we feel like we have uh, this, this right to be the top dogs. Um, support others. Quickly, I would say avoid idol worship as well. Uh, and this is the text, but I'm not going to read it. Uh, or it's actually 3, 8, and 12. Part of the problem with being creators and cultivators is that uh, we're always performing. And it's easy not only to make your job a, an idol, to make the thing you do an idol, but it's easy for you to become an idol, especially within Christian spaces where you become a distraction for the king in which you're make, making music about. So how do we avoid the fact that we can be an idol and we can eclipse the glory of God with our own platform? We must be careful in that. Lastly, we must trust God. Um, <clears throat> no matter the circumstances, we see that the Hebrew boys were thrown in the fire uh, or in the lion's den, or in the fire. They were thrown in the fire, but God was faithful to save them. Um, I think most of us, and I think I heard Brother James talk about how he, he preached on contentment. And oftentimes when we talk about contentment, we think of it as some like pseudo kind of like self-denial. And it's not that, like, I think about this quote from G.K. Chesterton. He says, being content ought to mean in English as it does in French. It means to be pleased. Being content in an attic ought not mean being unable to move from it and resign to, its living, or to, resign to living in it. It ought to mean appreciating all there is in such a position. How do we recognize that wherever God has placed us, yes, I can desire to move from this, but Lord, teach me to appreciate all that this position offers. How do I, that's real contentment. It's not just, oh, you know, I'm gonna act like I'm cool. I'm gonna act like I'm happy. No, like, you know what, Lord? I'm not happy right now, but teach me how to appreciate where you have me. Teach me how to, how to be the best conduit of, of, of your work in this present place. Is that a hard one minute? Is that a hard one minute and 20 seconds? Okay. It's going to be really... <laughs> I, I just want to end. I'm, I'm skipping some stuff. Oh, I didn't know if that was Sandman coming. Like, <laughs> I was like, hey, hey. Jesus loves me. This I know. I want to share a story about... <laughs> I want to share a story about a gentleman who I think had this idea of secular sacred, secular sacred just right, right? Uh, we heard about George Washington Carver and how he used the resources, the raw resources that God provided before him. But there's another individual in the 1800s named Arthur Guinness, right? Arthur, <laughs> Arthur Guinness, huh? Was a man who lived in Ireland. Come on, somebody. And if you don't know about Ireland in the 1800s, their water was poisonous. You couldn't drink the water. It would create diseases and, and, and sickness. But not only was the water contaminated, drunkenness was rush-eyed through the culture, amen? People were living in bars and taverns and alcohol-related diseases were at an all-time high, about 60%. Arthur Guinness, a man of God, said, Lord, give me insight and wisdom on how I can change my culture. The Lord said, start a beer company. So Arthur Guinness said, okay. 
But it's something interesting about this beer company. When you actually import it from other countries, it's considered a mineral. It's not even considered alcohol. It's almost impossible to get drunk off of Guinness beer. I didn't try. I just heard this. (laughs) But not only did he create something that was more nutritious for the people, he used his resources to open orphanages, hospitals, support missionaries, even the individuals who worked for him had an exceptional high, rate, high wage for that time and day. He would send beer to, to war uh, uh, um, uh, people, I can't think of, army. He would, send, he would send beer and rations to the army, to the military, soldiers, soldiers, war soldiers, come on somebody. <laughs> but not only did he create a, a resource that was healthy, not only did he use his resources for the benefit of other people, alcohol-related diseases dropped 30% because of his product. And he used his product for the glory of God. Now, I don't know what you're going to do. You, you, you can probably think that alcohol is probably the most secular space possible. But for somehow, the Lord saw fit to call this man into a space that is so secular, but use it for his glory and to change the world. I would just ask you guys, whatever you think It's too secular for the Lord to put you in. He is the Lord of all. All the earth is the Lord and all that is in it. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we thank you for your your earth. We thank you for, as the song said, receive our worship, Lord. And and not just our singing, Lord, not just our our dancing, but our worship of work, our our art, Lord, let us understand that you are Lord of everything create that you that we create, and that to you you own and you run everything. There is nothing that is off limits for you. You are Lord of all, and let us not be afraid to engage the world because you are with us and you have called us to pursue you. And as we pursue you, we will change the world. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.